0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Three Ps in a Pod. I'm Paul Jarvis, Editor of Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin, and I'm joined by my deputy Jonathan Davis. Hi Paul. In this episode, we'll be discussing the role of PPP in supporting keyworker housing, as well as the positive side of PPP. And there'll also be an appearance from our regular snoop packet P deals with, with some of the more unusual stories of the past few weeks. Now, there's been a few different things going on in the UK health sector over the recent weeks. And Jonathan, I know you've been following the plans to increase the availability of housing for NHS staff. Would you talk a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I spoke to Sarah Horden. She's a non-executive director at Oxford University Hospitals Trust with NHS. And she has helped co-author a white paper trying to help alleviate, which is one of the fundamental problems which the NHS has, which is staff retention. And the way that they want to target that is by creating and solving the main issue for people leaving, which is 68% said that there is not affordable housing within hospital grounds or within reachable areas, which you can imagine because hospitals are often in city centres. So the way they want to do this is to utilise the NHS's massive surplus land and redevelop them into affordable housing, which will be solely rented to key workers and NHS staff, which is quite an interesting proposal, particularly as we have seen private sector been involved in one form or another in hospital projects, but not so much recently. There's been a few, there was, I think it was King's Hospital in London had a DBFM project, but it's been a bit of a dry area compared to previous years.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think the interesting thing about that is that, as you said, there have been one or two tenders that have come out sort of DBF, DBFM but not actually gone anywhere from the kind of early expressions of interest phase. So yeah, it's interesting, not entirely sure whether those are still ongoing in the background or whether they've been sort of quietly dropped. And certainly, you know, there has been a a moratorium effectively on private sector involvement in NHS infrastructure over the past several years now. And yeah, there've been kind of examples of trusts doing these projects, these kind of housing projects, whether they are, you know, housing for key workers or sometimes patient housing facilities on excess land in the past. But again, well, first of all, they've been quite piecemeal, really, in the way they've been brought about. But also, again, it's one of those things that sort of died away a little bit as the, um, I think, prevailing attitudes, particularly you know, in the NHS and in the health sector, has pushed away from wanting to use private finance. And so I think it's become more and more difficult for trusts to simply you know take some private finance for a bit of land and kind of do what it wants with it but obviously this is slightly different because it's focused specifically on key worker stroke social stroke well, affordable housing
1: that focus is deliberate and like you say there are there are needs and drivers to want to do this but there are also forces going against the use of it and sarah was quite frank in the fact that you've got different parties involved in these developments, and they're often talking in completely different languages. And trying to help find a common language to get these projects moving and unstuck was a major challenge, which she said she spent a lot of time trying to overcome. And part of that is trying to break the perception that you're kind of selling the family silver by giving this very valuable land, often inner city land, over to a private developer who's just, and then it's then it's gone. And I think there's a lot of lessons learned here from the joint venture approach that has been happening in the regeneration space and with housing associations. And they do mention joint ventures as one of the potential models for this in the future. But they're also very explicit that these are long-term leases and they will end up being handed back in some form or another to the NHS Trust after 30, 40, 50 years. And that is critical in making sure that family silver element doesn't come into the conversation and it becomes politicised. It helps to just keep it moving forward. And it also helps them get around the capex envelopes that the trusts are often bound by. And any capital project usually has to fit inside that. So it does kind of indicate a return to the off-balance sheet development that we've seen before. And it does ring of the PPP, but not PPP, which has become in vogue across a lot of sectors in the country. Now, like I said, the model is not set in stone, and they are looking for feedback from the private sector into what investors and developers would like to get involved and what they would like to see. And the white paper called for an interministerial government task force to be set up to help drive this conversation forward. And within days, it had been agreed to. And so that is happening in government. And one of the goals of that is to create a standardized, potentially template for other trusts to use. So this is early stages, there's a lot up in the air. But in terms of a actual pipeline, the NHS has got a huge, huge reservoir of surplus land, and some really important needs. So this could be a really fertile area for new projects that are really good for the communities and the health of the NHS as well.
0: Yeah, and I think you reference the potential of joint ventures and structures like that. I think that's really important because I think for a lot of these trusts, probably when someone comes along and says to them, "Oh, you can work with the private sector on this," they immediately think PFI. Hmm. That will immediately link to for many of them, you know, large sections of their budget that's ring fenced that's index linked and therefore is becoming a greater proportion of their budget every year. All these negative connotations that PFI has, particularly in the health sector at the moment, we've talked plenty about this and obviously talked about the White Fraser review recently, which went into some of this stuff, particularly on hospitals. But the conversation has actually, in terms of new projects, moved on so much more in recent years from PFI and one party on one side and one party on the other side discussion into these joint ventures, as you say, Regeneration has done a lot on that. And we need to see that kind of relationship happening more and more. That is the partnership element of public-private partnerships of PPP.
1: Yeah, definitely. And one of the critical differences is that these wouldn't be done in the availability payment style that has happened in the past. And that has been the problem that has happened in a lot of the health projects. In the white paper, they say that Demand risk is one of the key elements to that housing and the private sector would take that on and to develop it to have that long term lease. So that is really fundamentally different to the way that PFIs have operated in the past. So hopefully that would help to navigate around that reputation risk at the same time. But like you said, we've seen some really successful projects and partnerships of quasi private-private partnership forms across the u k and and it's great to see that there's being lessons learned from different sectors and applied to new ones because there's a lot of cross pollination that can be effective and also this is very similar to student housing, which has been a really successful vein in the industry,
0: yeah certainly, and there are already organizations that are doing some of this stuff as well, and um you know following some of your work and your conversations. I had a, a conversation with Roger Alexander, who's the managing director of Cubic Three, and there's an article on the website actually which goes into a bit more detail on this. But, you know, his firm, one of the things that they've been doing and one of the things they're increasingly moving into is essentially creating unsolicited proposals to deliver key worker homes. So they're not necessarily using NHS surplus land, but they're using land that is close to a hospital or some other key facility. And working to get that land to a position whereby everyone is ready to go on to deliver some new housing on it and then sort of taking it to the local council as a sort of almost a ready-baked deal ready to go.
1: Yeah, I think that ready-baked deal is really important as well, particularly when you're navigating sometimes public sectors that can be really struggling for resources as well. That if you can come to the CFO with a fully-fledged plan to say, we can do this, we can solve this problem for you, which solves, say in the NHS one, the problem of staff retention and not have to tie up their resources for a number of years developing proposals and having to go through all of those loopholes, I think that can be a really, really useful element to the market. Not saying that it's perfect and it's something that every authority is open to, but in terms of generating projects, private sector going on the front foot, I think, could be a, a, another useful vein and help to invigorate the new ideas, which can then lead to other projects down the line being housed by the public sector.
0: Yes, I think that's a really good point to try and change to a certain extent the perception of PBP, particularly in the health sector. Now, staying on health as well, but on a slightly different topic, there are some interesting moves going on to prepare for expiry in the lift programme which focuses on primary care facilities, of course. Community Health Partnerships is the central government body that supports the sector. And it has a a series of different challenges, really, to the majority of the PFI industry when it comes to expiring handback because they don't really have the handback element in the same way in that these projects largely revert to private sector ownership when the contract ends. So I've had some interesting conversations really around what they're trying to do and how they are trying to prepare that market for change. And I think they're going to face, to a certain extent, some challenges because in a lot of cases, these facilities are still very much in use and there is still a need from the NHS to keep them being used as local services. And I think, especially as the policy has not changed in recent times, that there is that focus on getting more delivery of health services into the community. And especially as you know, over the last several years, technology has changed and improved. We've seen through the pandemic how these local surgeries and clinics can be adapted and used for specific needs and to cover a whole range of issues from dealing with triaging patients at the start of the pandemic through to providing the um, the inoculation program towards the end. So there's a massive need for these facilities. We all know the the kind of the backlog in the NHS and all that kind of stuff. So there's going to be that desire to keep them going. But actually, there are various ways in which obviously that can be done. It could be an extension of a lease arrangement. But also, there is the option for community health partnerships and the government, therefore, to buy out these contracts. And that is going to raise some questions, because to do that... They will need more money, and that is obviously always a politically charged conversation. And I think, particularly in the context of PFI, PBP, and you know all the history of the PFI stories that come out of this hospital cost fifty million, but was spending a hundred million on it through the PFI contract. If you're saying, well, we've been spending on this lift project for the last twenty years, but now we have to it back. There's lots of serious questions that are going to be raised there. And actually finding that money is not going to be easy in the current environment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so much churning around the role that private sector can play in trying to support the NHS and trying to help it just provide essential services. And but there's questions like these that hover over it, which can be difficult to solve. And I know recently the National Audit Office posted a review about the hospital's plan, which is obviously major in its scope. What does that indicate to you? Any way things might be going? I think
0: that just highlights some of the problems facing the market to some extent, and the, or certainly facing the, the health sector in terms of finding the a way through, finding the the money to deliver these projects. And you know, one of the things that the NAO mentioned was the fact that the capital budgets hadn't necessarily been fully. Explained for the entirety of the programme, because partly because the funding round only went up for four or five years and, and the, there was a certain amount of money in that for that section. But at the same time, the government policy is saying we're going to you know, invest in all these projects over the next 10 years. But actually, the amount of money that was provided in that first part was only enough to get a first tranche of projects through. So it's really difficult, I think, to see. It's not like we've suddenly come into a whole lot of money in this country in the last few years either. So there are those competing tensions as well in the health service of, well, we've got to get these hospitals that have been promised actually through the system. Where are we going to find this extra money for if we want to buy suddenly some primary care facilities as well?
1: But that circles back to what we were saying earlier about new ideas coming forward and ways for, in the case we said about the NHS trusts, finding routes to expand what they can do and if there are areas perhaps hospitals are too charged maybe for most trusts in the future but staff housing might not be so trying to find the places where the private sector can come and help to ramp up development and solve issues and trying to define that I think and create pipelines for that over the long term and also define areas where it's not going to work and it's that clarity which we always hear the private sector looking for in every space, not just health. It's that long-term plan. At the moment, it's hard to see what the long-term plan is, full stop.
0: Yeah, and I think you add in a layer of political uncertainty, what might happen at an election in what a year or so's time now. So that really adds a, another layer of difficulty to a lot of these conversations and perhaps raises questions around what people are willing to do and how far they're willing to to go on any stuff so yeah i think the lift program has been i think generally considered a success and it was notable that when it had its recent anniversary there was ministerial approval of it and comments about what it achieved in a way that obviously you would never see on a, a pfi program no government minister is going to turn up at a school or hospital i don't think to celebrate its you know 25th anniversary of being a PFI. They might turn up at a PFI school or hospital to celebrate something else, but it wouldn't be for the PFI element of it. So to bring maybe a uh, more positive angle to conversation, Jonathan, we have been doing quite a bit of work recently actually around the positives that PVPs can bring. And I think, you know, to a certain sense, it's a bit of an antidote about what we've just been talking about. And also a lot of the noise in the UK in particular in recent times has been around the White Fraser report, which we've done a podcast on recently. We've done plenty of articles on the website about it. And for those who aren't familiar with it still, it's the report into behaviors in PFI contracts and looking specifically actually at the small number of contracts where relationships have gone bad. But it's important, I think, for everyone to remember that they are actually a small proportion of the overall number of contracts that are out there and that actually you know, the vast majority are experiencing a positive outcome as a result of being in a PFI or PPP contract and we've done some articles on that over the last few months really looking at some of the positives and how we can sort of highlight really what, what's going on you know, that isn't hitting top news because it's just going on under the radar.
1: Yeah, for me... In the Americas, I wanted to focus on a couple of the negative stories that have happened in industry and actually kind of shine a light on what they mean for the industry as a whole. They came in the form of delivery problems and the risk transfer element that has happened. So up in Edmonton in Canada, the Valley Line, the southeast portion of the light rail, last year had some major issues in the fact that there were cracks found in the support pillars on some of the stretches of the railway line. And this was only a couple of months before it was supposed to open. Now that is obviously a really big disappointment to the city, to the private sector partners who were involved in that. But crucially, it demonstrated the fact that P3s do actually provide the risk transfer and The city, as the city manager says, have incurred no cost, not directly anyway. Of course, there will be some for the delay in in the project that does have to be pointed out. But for P3s, we often focus on the financing that used to be the major pro that came with it. And also then it transferred to the delivery and it was certainty on delivery. This is obviously not a great example of that. And also innovation, most commonly you hear that now about new technologies and the ability for the private sector to incorporate that. But right fundamentally, at the bottom of what a P3 and a PPP is, risk transfer, that's why the public sector pay more money, because risk has to be priced in at some point. And it's important that for the public sector to understand that when this does happen, when these risks materialise, and there are problems which are unforeseeable that transfer actually does take place because often you hear when you go to conferences and perhaps some corners of the market will say oh actually risk ultimately gets held by the public sector they're the ones who own the assets in the long term so it always ends up falling back on them but that is a concrete example pardon the pun of transfer being gone to the private sector and it working out in the city's favor another example of this was in colorado the denver eagle projects it always seems to be railway lines that have the really big problems they were in a dispute with the authority about who should pay for this problem with signaling which emerged a couple of years ago and it racked up i think it was over 100 million in terms of the cost to write this problem and during this dispute, the city wanted to leave the project and terminate it, whereas the private sector wanted to recoup the costs that they'd enforced, then the legal ruling was that, you know what, neither of you are going to get your what you want from this. The public private sector will have to pay because it's part of the contract, and the public sector will have to maintain their position and hold up the contract. And that's another example of P3s actually delivering what they say is on the tin. And for those in the States who are or in Canada or anywhere in the world really who are thinking about delivering a P3 and really trying to decide will it deliver value for money and what are the estimations on this? What risks should we hold? What risks shouldn't we hold? Also, with progressive P3s coming into the frame, there's a lot of different motives and considerations around that. But fundamentally, risk transfer is at the bottom of every public-private partnership. And seeing them demonstrated and working is really important.
0: Yeah, and that risk element, again, we've learned a lot over the last 20 or more years of UK PFI experience. And most people would agree that a large part of the problems that the UK has had is the fact that originally PFI was perhaps sold as transferring all the risk from the public sector to the private sector, which can't really ever work, as you say, because you know underlying it at the end is the requirement for the public sector to provide the service that they are paying for. So what we have learned over the last 25 and more years is that actually you can divvy up those risks in a way that is more sensible. And I think that's something that we've seen quite a lot in places like Ontario, I think, talk quite a lot about this, Infrastructure Ontario in particular, about how they best apportion the risks to the different parties so that the outcome is ideal for all. And I think that also reduces then the overall cost because you're not asking the private sector to take on risks that it struggles to quantify and therefore just has to put a big number on it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I read a recent McKinsey blog about that and the premiums that are paid for taking on those risks can seem quite big and so that's why it's important to really have the conversations about who should who should have it but if that risk does materialize that's great you for the public sector you've avoided paying that huge cost
0: i think that's the other thing as well isn't it that often the criticisms come when those risks don't materialize and the private sector makes a lot of money i think again it would be better for the industry as a whole if the or for the industry's reputation, at least, if the private sector was a bit more willing sometimes to come out and admit where it had lost money or where things hadn't gone so well. And I think there's a a tendency, for understandable commercial reasons, I suppose, that they want to keep that a bit more quiet. And so actually you only see in the company reports, X company has made massive profit off this project because this project has gone well. There's a lot less that you see the opposite case. And I think there are, everyone in the industry will know, everyone who's listening to this will know of cases where that's not been the case and where the private sector has been stung effectively.
1: Yeah, particularly in America, nobody minds somebody making a buck when they've done a good job, but it can't appear like a free lunch. And sometimes that is a criticism that is levied at the industry at large. But there is a lot of change that happens with the conversations around risk. And I think having these poll stars and clear examples and case studies that you can point at and say, these are some critical elements that are lessons learned and demonstrations really help to drive the conversation forward, because otherwise it's very theoretical. And that's another criticism is that the industry can sometimes at conferences just talk around in a circle. But Finding new ways to distribute risk, whether that is through progressive P3s, as we said, or in this case, trying to really portion it up and live that out, I think it's just useful to have. And it may seem like a PPP negative to say, oh, look, sometimes things go wrong, but that's a fact that there's no way of, well, hopefully you can avoid that, but at some point risks will materialise. But being able to establish that connection between risk and reward I think will be a good thing and a healthy thing for the industry at large and for the public sector at the same time.
0: Yes, yes, indeed. And as mentioned earlier, we've done several um, articles on this and will continue to do so. So, yeah, look out for those and and also maybe get in touch if you have examples of good practice, because I think we'd be keen to hear from them and try and publicise it a bit more, because, as we said earlier, the problem is that very often the only noise that you hear is the negative side. So... Yeah, the more positives we can find, the the better, I think. And it's time now to catch up again with our resident Snoop Hackett P. Dealsworth to see what's been happening behind the headlines. And what have you got for us this week, Hackett?
2: Well, Paul, I've been taking a look into South America, in particular the goings-on in Colombia. Seems the mayor of the country's capital city is somewhat at odds with the president over a P3 contract.
0: Is one opposed to the new infrastructure while the other desperately wants it?
2: Not quite. Both seem to be in favour of it, but the President now wants part of it to be delivered underground.
0: Well, I'm sure that can be sorted through a new procurement process.
2: Well, you'd have thought so, except that this is an already signed P3 contract. In fact, the Mayor reckons 18% of the work is already completed, so getting the private partners to suddenly head underground might not be so simple.
0: Mm, That does sound like a more complex proposition. But of course, it wouldn't be the first time a mayor of a capital city has argued with central government over a transport PVP. I seem to remember similar friction in London between then-Mayor Ken Livingstone and the Westminster government over the tube PVP many years ago.
2: Oh yeah. Well, funny you should mention London. I reckon some of our listeners in South London might be thinking that all this talk of underground overground is a sign that lawyers Womble Bon Dickinson should be getting involved.
0: Nice 70s-based pun there, Hackett. Uh, Let's move on before we get into any trademark issues, shall we?
2: Fair enough, but sticking with lawyers for just a moment, a few of them in the UK seem to be questioning the whole expiry and handback fuss.
0: Really? In what way?
2: Well, there's a feeling from some that the work just isn't coming through as they might have expected when the Infrastructure and Projects Authority launched its guidance about 18 months ago.
0: And do they know what might be behind this?
2: It seems that in a lot of cases, the public sector just isn't getting engaged with the issues, which you can understand. I mean, many of these people are busy fighting fires today. I mean, if I was the head of an NHS trust struggling with striking doctors, having my private sector partner side the luck to me, asking what I think I'll need this building for in seven years' time probably wouldn't go down too well.
0: It's a good point, Hackett. Also depressingly concerning one. There needs to be proper engagement on the handback and expiry issue sooner rather than later, because otherwise projects will simply hurtle towards their end without any plan in place for the future. Indeed,
2: Paul, which is why a growing number of people seem to think many of these contracts will simply be extended for short periods.
0: I suppose that could then result in the public sector teams treating that extension period as a time to get into crisis mode to hammer out the final deal. Not necessarily the best way for an orderly transition to take place, or indeed the creation of a legacy for PFI. What else has been happening, Hackett?
2: Well, on the subject of legacy for PFI, I thought it worth mentioning that Sheffield City Council have now issued a public letter of apology over strategic leadership and wisdom failures during its PFI Trees dispute, or the so-called Sheffield Chainsaw Massacre, which we discussed briefly during the show a couple of weeks ago.
0: Oh, yes, of course. The importance of the Sheffield Trees, I mean streets, PFI.
2: That's the one. Well... Anyway, it seems the council has now issued a rather grovelling apology for the whole debacle, and the locals are none too impressed.
0: Yeah, I can imagine all those years of delay, the demonstrations, arrests, only to admit they were wrong after all. It's not a pretty picture.
2: Not pretty at all, but it's not just the council on the receiving end. Some locals are still angry that Amy, the private partner, hasn't resurfaced every road in the city yet.
0: Surely they wouldn't have been expected to yet. It's a long-term contract after all, and one that has been severely disrupted by the trees issues. Where did you hear of this criticism? Was it at a meeting where the contract was being considered in detail?
2: Uh, Not quite, no. It was on a Jeremy Vine's BBC Radio 2 show when a bloke called Bob phoned in.
0: Mm. Seems I'm going to have to find you some more work to do so you're not sitting around listening to talk radio on weekday afternoons in future. I think that's enough for today. Thanks as ever, Hackett.
2: Thank you, Gulp.